0: Welcome to The Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. Today's episode is part one of a conversation between our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick and Dr. Scott McKnight. Scott is a world-renowned speaker, writer, professor, and equipper of the church. He is a recognized authority on the historical Jesus, early Christianity, and the New Testament. He's currently working on a series of New Testament everyday Bible study guides with volume one on James and Galatians coming out in April. You can keep up with Scott via his Tove Unleashed newsletter on Substack and the Kingdom Roots podcast. We are so excited to welcome Scott to the podcast today.
1: Scott, thank you so much for joining the Alabaster Jar podcast. You have the distinction of being the first man that we have interviewed on the Alabaster Jar. And you don't know how much joy it gives me to say that when (laughs) so often I've been introduced as the first woman in this situation or that situation. So how's it feel to wear the glass slipper?
2: (laughs) You know i well, uh, first of all, I'm glad to be with you, Lynn and serene uh it is uh, you know i I think I know sometimes how this feels, uh but it's something that I try to work on is that women often feel excluded or marginalized or their voice is barely being heard when uh by because men have dominated the scene so much, so I once was at an event. Um, Carol Custis James invited me to speak at an event in Orlando. And there were two men and about 500 women. (laughs) And I remember thinking, who do I talk to here? And as I sat there, I thought, this is how women feel all the time in academic meetings uh, and in pastor meetings. So I just sort of, just kind of explored how I felt about this and thought I-, I need to learn from this. So I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, glad well, to be the delighted. first man.
1: There you go. That's it. That, and we're we're thrilled that you're here. Um, you know, our friendship goes back uh, a number of years. Um, I uh, I recall how you, um, well, you you just gave me opportunities. Uh, I think one of the first writing projects that I had after I finished the dissertation. Was to contribute a chapter in your co-edited book with Joe Modica called, uh, Who Do My Opponents Say That I Am? Where I talked, uh, about the phrase that, uh, Pilate puts on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Um, and, oh, I, I, I still can call up my nervousness, uh, my feelings of nervousness and also excitement in doing that, that project. Um, what what uh, my, uh, motivated you to do such an intriguing topic in that in that book?
2: Well, at that time, I was I was doing stuff on uh, on, let's say, John the Baptist and Jesus's conversations with one another as it revealed who Jesus was. And I was all I've been convinced for quite a while that the best way to read the Gospels is to ask the question, who who is he? But I, I got into this idea, and I didn't, I didn't really think about it any other way. But I, uh, I thought I would like to explore what the opponents uh, think of Jesus as a way of exploring uh, Christology, because almost it's you flip it, you flip the script, and you figure out what the Christians believe versus their opponents. And I just mentioned this to Joe, uh, my old buddy from way back in the eighties. And he says, oh, let's do a book on this. So Joe and I start uh, compiling names and you were at the top of our list, Lynn.
1: Oh, I don't know about that, but <laughs> but I appreciated the, the invitation for sure and, uh, and took advantage of that. Yeah, the, um, you talk about being in gospel studies. That's really sort of where you cut your teeth, if you will. Uh, the volume on atonement um, that came, I can't remember when, when did that come out?
2: Oh, I'm not very good at remembering dates. So maybe 10 years ago
1: Yeah.
2: Um, on Jesus and his death. Yep. yep. Yeah. But um, I did my dissertation on, on Matthew
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, on the missionary discourse. And when I taught at Trinity uh, for 12 years, I think it was 12 years basically I, all I taught was the Gospels. I mean, I got to teach other stuff a little bit, but my, my core curriculum was Synoptic Gospels and Matthew and discipleship, et cetera. And then when I went to North Park, there was someone already teaching Paul. So I didn't get to teach Paul there either. So it was basically Jesus of Nazareth was my core course at North yeah. Park for 17 years. So um, I was... And, that's,
1: and that's you've done field. a lot, the uh, Jesus Creed. That book has sold now 50,000 or more, Um, it's come out. uh, They put what, a 15th anniversary edition that's come out. I know when I read the Jesus Creed, that really, it just reframed things for me. Summarize it a little bit for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with the Jesus Creed.
2: Well, Lynn, both of us have a, a deep interest in the Jewish context. And so I was teaching a course um, two courses. Uh, I would teach Jesus of Nazareth at eight o'clock and uh, a course for fourth year students. Uh, and we were doing spiritual formation and they were, it was like one at eight and one at nine. And as I was walking to my Jesus class, the first class, I would always be thinking, now how does this Jesus class connect to the next class? And I got to, as I was teaching the course, I got to thinking all as early in the term, how would Jesus have framed spiritual formation? And this just became a bit of an obsession for me. And one day I asked the class, that was a rhetorical question, how would Jesus do this? And I began to explore it. And I said, Jesus was a Jew. And and a typical Jewish piety was to recite Shema and the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments daily, maybe two or three times a day, maybe more, depending on how literal someone took the statements in Deuteronomy six. So I just kinda, two things happened at once. I began to recite the Shema in Hebrew when my feet hit the ground and when I took my feet off the ground. My goal was to do this for one month and just see what would happen. And I also said to myself, I would say it anytime during the day when it came to mind. Well, if you get into this kind of habit before long, you're saying it all the time. It, your mind just sort of wanders, and uh, at the that, that was one thing. It was a praxis. The other thing is, as I was teaching the classes, I began to notice how often this sort of, uh, let's say, love God, love others, or relationship to God, relationship to others, are interplaying with one another. And of course, First John puts this in full color. So. Um, By the end of that term, I had convinced myself that I had to work on this. But what was really peculiar is I did not know how to write at that level. I had no idea. I thought I did. I think a lot of academics think, oh, I'll just make it popular. Well, that's not the way it works. And I am so grateful for my editor at Paraclete. By the way, I I got rejected by six different publishers for that manuscript before Paraclete took it. Wow. Yeah, yeah, That's hard.
1: and
2: um, and I got I I had words with one of the others the other day. She said, "Do you have to bring this up every <laughs> time we're together?" <laughs> and, and I um, I had Lil Copan at Paraclete who really worked the manuscript hard, and I remember seeing pages where she would just have a big X through the whole page, the next page, and she wrote at the bottom, "This is awful."
1: Oh my word! <laughs> I went, I went, oh, I worked hard
2: on those were on those words. So she was ri- I mean, I- I'm a different writer because of Lil Copat. She was that good.
1: Yeah. And uh, and and you didn't give up. You saw it as a way to become a better writer in that in that genre for that audience. Yeah, well, that uh, not everyone kind of can manage that. Uh, I think some would have just been discouraged enough to do something else
2: you know you know this as well as i do in academic publishing sometimes we get virtually no edits you know you misspelled this word or this footnote needs to have this reversed but the actual working over of your prose and making you a better writer uh, most of the editors at academic publishers don't see that as their task at all their job is to get this thing make sure it's tidy so I, I'm grateful for that. And it, it really changed. I remember uh, a couple points. Uh, Lil told me, don't try to convince your audience. Your audience trusts you. Wow. Hmm. That was interesting. So instead of trying to prove my point, she said, you don't have to prove it. They already believe you. Just say it and use the <laughs> words of Jesus to support it. And then uh, the second thing is she told me every chapter has only one idea. She said, you often have four ideas per page. She said, spread it out. And that really made a big difference to me. And over the years after that, I, I've tried to do that with all my books that, that Chris calls readable. Uh, I <laughs> have readable wife. books. <laughs> yeah, I have readable books and unreadable books. So,
1: Well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to get in the middle of that spousal conversation, uh, but I, around the same time, 2008, when you were doing the uh, Who Do My Opponents Say That I Am, another book that really shaped my, my thinking and my teaching, uh, The Blue Parakeet, came out. What was the, t- tell us a little bit about that, and also what prompted you to write The Blue Parakeet, and what a great title, by the way.
2: <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you said that, because I had to fight like crazy for that title. They did not <laughs> want that title. They said, what What are we going to advertise it? What are we going to put on the cover? I said, how about a blue parakeet?
1: Hey, there you and go. Then they said, well,
2: <laughs> how's that going to help? I said, maybe they'll open the book. And I said, then we have it. We're winning. Um, originally, that book was going to be on how to read the Bible with four illustrations. One on women, one on gospel, one on atonement. I I don't remember the other one now. Maybe it was justice or something. And the women uh, the reading the Bible as narrative was the big part of it. And then uh, I was gonna just have one chapter for each of these other four topics. And the women one got so long that I wrote to my called my editor John Raymond, and I said, I, I think it. I said, I think it can work just as just one topic. And he looked at it and he totally agreed. So then I, I did other stuff with the other topics. But um, my goal was to try to make the narrative approach to scripture more accessible in light of what I was teaching my college students at North Park. Um, the book has become a little bit more known for the women's section than um, originally. I, I thought it was gonna be narrative with an illustration. But I, I, frankly, as it got into it, I realized this is really what, what's gonna sing in this book. So I, I just, I worked really, really hard on that. And you know, your stuff has always been helpful to me. And um, Tal Ilan stuff I was, I was teaching at the time. So I, I felt like I had a lot of stuff to say but it, the, the goal uh, to me uh, was, was really fulfilled when, for me, because of the, my plea with people to, to open up the doors, uh, open up the platform for women to, to be speakers, let the blue parakeet sing was my language. My goal was, um, I achieved when I realized a good question is, what did women do in the Bible? And I remember having a, a big conversation with a really strong complementarian, and I said, "Do you allow women to do in your church what they did in the New Testament period?" He said, "Of course." I said, "You're not even close. I can assure you <laughs> that they're not. They're not even uh, close to what they were doing." And that that was such a captivating question for me, and I wanted to ask the question, what did women do in the New Testament
1: why was text it, themselves? Yeah. Why was it such a captivating question? I mean, what, was there an, uh, a moment when, or did it kind of gradually come up? Because I, I can't overestimate how Blue Parakeet gave me that added confidence uh, to to say what I'm studying matters. I mean, I was told, uh, and, I, and, I, and, and I also intuited, I'm not going to study this at, that is women in the biblical text, while I'm doing my dissertation, or even before I get it published, or, you know, I got to establish myself as a writer before I go into women's studies, because people will just put me in like a scholarly ghetto, because uh, it's not really a scholarly subject. And I think blue parakeet really, uh, really caused people to think very differently about the the study of women in the New Testament?
2: Well, I think for me, Lynn, it was I, for a huge example for me of, of impact was Deborah and Holda, along with, of course, the New Testament text. I'm fascinated by Mary. I think she de- deserves a whole lot more status among Protestant evangelicals and your book, than she does. And did. I'd recommend your yeah. book.
1: Your book is great yeah. on Mary.
2: And then Priscilla and Phoebe and Junia. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, here's a woman who was running the nation, Deborah. Huldah was not chosen because there were a bunch of uh, males didn't have the courage to step up. She was chosen because she was better than other people. I mean, this she's got Jeremiah as a competitor. You know, maybe a bad day. And they said, no, we're going to let Jeremiah do this. Mary, I think, has all kinds of virtues. But um, Priscilla is teaching. She's clearly an important part of Paul's ministries and she's a leader. Uh Junia, uh Phoebe, Phoebe, I was convinced by Bob Jewett's stuff that she was the courier and she would have probably read the letter. And if she and if she didn't read it, she told somebody else how to read it, because it had to be communicated. And you don't just sit down and read Romans if you don't know what you're talking about. If because there's going to be a ton of questions. And then Junia. Um, I saw, I said, she was an apostle. That's all there is to it. So I thought all those things right there, that shows us what women did. Plus they were praying publicly. They were prophesying. They were apostoling. They were deaconing. They're doing all these things. Um, So the tendency to just use 1 Timothy 2 to silence women goes against the very texts in the New Testament and early Christianity, of what they were actually doing. So that, that question sort of, I, I can tell you in teaching um, students at North Park, when I said, I just want you to go through these texts and tell me what women did. By the time they were done, they were totally convinced. They did, The Bible convinced them. I didn't even have to talk about it, so.
0: Scott, I was on campus uh, at Northern recently for a class with Lynn where we looked at women in the early church. And as I'm listening to you talk about these examples of what women were really doing during that time, I'm thinking back to that week on campus. Yeah, our listeners can't see it right now, but he's holding up the book that we read for that class. And, uh, you know, In our times after class, we had some discussions, those of us that are women in ministry, about some of the breadcrumbs that led us to where we are today. And for many of us, it included books that we stumbled upon that opened our eyes to the reality of these stories that were often not told, or the reality of what women really were doing in the Bible and in the early church. And I just wonder when you wrote that book back in 2008, there are still women today over a decade later that stumble across the blue parakeet. And it's one of those breadcrumbs that lead us to um, discovering our identity in Christ and how we are designed and called to to live and, and to minister. And so I just wonder maybe how you've seen that impact over um, these past years since the book's been out do you see the goal that you had in mind when you wrote that book being fulfilled? Um, I know you sat around with some of us and chatted after class one day, and that was just an amazing moment to sit there with men and women and just chat with you. And I wonder, as you like look at us as students or people that you've seen that have been impacted by the book, you know, where do you see that um, playing out? Yeah.
2: Um, when I was uh, a young professor at, at Trinity, I would speak on behalf of women, and a a very strong feminist woman in one of my classes came up to me and said, we don't need you defending us. We can do this on our own. And so I just kind of went silent on that topic. And I think that was an early flush of evangelical feminism where they, they, they thought this could happen. While I was at North Park, I came to the strong conviction that, women, that, that men own the platforms and that if they don't get off the platform and share it with women, then it will never happen. So I wanted to use what platform I had to share with women. And I've, I've, I've tried to practice that for 25 years. Um, but Serene, I cannot tell you the number of women who have told me with tears in their eyes that blue parakeet gave them confidence. I mean, I was just in Wichita, Kansas, and two women came up to me and said, "I just want to tell you how much I thank you for Blue Parakeet." And you know, the blue parakeet's still singing, and and I, it's really fun for me. Um, but it it was this. The impact of this book is way bigger than anything I ever expected. And uh, a lot bigger than Zondervan expected, too. I can assure you of that. Um, so, I'm. I just. I was. Just, I was in uh, Madison just two days ago, and two women said to me, "I only know about you from Blue Parakeet, and I just want to thank you for it." So, it's been, it's been very satisfying a, as a book for for ministry. Mm-hmm.
0: Is there anything fresh that you would speak to those women today from where you were when you wrote the book in 2000 or when it was published in 2008 to where we're at in 2021? Anything that a new word or something fresh that you would add to maybe what you see happening in the world around us now in 2021, specifically for women that are reading the book now?
2: Well, I can tell you that um, Northern has been such an incredible experience for me. Nine years of teaching here, and the growth of the number of women students is just wonderful. Uh, And you know, I have a couple cohorts that are uh, there are more women than men, and I just think it's it's amazing because my first couple classes at Northern just didn't have that many women in them. They there were women here, and we've always supported women, but um, so to me, the fresh word is um, we're seeing a slow growth of an increasing openness to women in ministry that is almost inescapable and irresistible because of the gift giftedness of women is being uh, seen. So I'm really encouraged about it. I I really am. And look, we have Lynn who is our Dean. We have Beth Felker Jones teaching systematic theology. Uh, We, I think when you come around Northern Seminary, you see a, a, the presence of women. Um, you know, I I am not big in, into using categories like egalitarianism, etc. But we we honor and value the gifts of women in our seminary. I think at a structural and personal existential level. I
1: I would agree with I that, value. Scott. I, that's how I experience it. I think that there, uh there is a culture that celebrates women and their success. And uh, you mentioned earlier uh, something about Hulda and she was picked because she just did it better. And I, I can tell you stories, even recently hearing about someone who was talking about teaching a language class and the woman in the class was better than the guys and doing the language. And that bothered the male students to be Bested by a a woman, mm you know that that's just for a lot of men that that is the one thing that's hard, and so there's this kind of um implied competition or not even implied, just this kind of competition rather than community um which we'll get to in a minute, but I don't wanna leave Blue Parakeet without asking you a little bit more about narrative. You talked about how you feel narrative is important. And even in your most recent book that came out on five things biblical scholars wished theologians knew, you talk about narrative. So that's clearly something that is important to you as a way to engage in the biblical text. Uh, The more technical term would be hermeneutics. Talk a little bit about why that That's so crucial for us as we try to live our lives honoring the Lord.
2: All right. But first, I dedicated Blue Parakeet to Cheryl Hatch, who was in the second exegesis class I ever taught. And every man in the room knew that Cheryl was the best student in the class and the best preacher in the class. And she couldn't get a job because she was a woman.
1: Uh, you know, so, I, and when, when was that? That would be, uh, like back in early or something.
2: Mid-80s, mid-80s. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah. Well, I, as sadly, when I was teaching, uh, at Wheaton College, we had a senior seminar. About a quarter of the class were women. And one woman, uh, many, many of the students went on to, uh, go get their masters or their MDiv. And they all talked, they had to share, you know, what their plans were at graduation because this was a senior class. And um, one woman indicated that she got into um, uh, a really good seminary and she wasn't, though, able to complete her application because her church would not sign a letter of recommendation for her to study the Bible. And I thought, wow, that was my experience, too. My church did not sign a letter of recommendation for me to go to seminary, so I don't have a seminary degree. Because <laughs> I wanted to go and study the Bible, and they wouldn't they wouldn't sign off on that. And I thought, ah, oh, next generation, and here we are again. But here was the difference. Back when it happened to me, nobody batted an eye. It was just like, well, whatever. But around the table in this class, all of the male students almost stop breathing like their jaws just dropped to the floor because they knew she was incredibly gifted the smartest student in the class but also they knew she was so humble uh filled with the spirit total genuine authentic christian in the way you'd want you'd want to be yourself you know and so they couldn't they they couldn't use the kind of tired tropes of well you just want power or oh you just want you know, whatever secular goal might be, they knew she was just genuinely wanting to serve the Lord. And they, I think for many of them who were part of churches that restricted women's leadership, they saw, for these young men saw for the first time, the ramification of that position, which up to that point had been just a doctrine. But now they saw, wow, this affects one of my peers who I know is a godly woman who's really smart. So anyway, Yeah. She eventually got a letter written from by somebody else and went off and has done great things for the Lord. So.
2: (laughs) Well, someday when we're alone, I'll ask you who this is. At any rate, (laughs) narrative. All right. E.P. Sanders came to the University of Nottingham when I was a student with Jimmy Dunn and gave a lecture on Paul. And it was it was pretty fun to have Sanders in the room. And I remember going to Jimmy Dunn's office afterwards and I said, Jimmy, is there a, a systematic theology of Judaism? And Jimmy said to me, Judaism didn't have a systematic theology, they had a story to tell. And I went, okay, now I don't know what to do with this, but that's pretty good. So in 1992, I think, I, maybe it was 93, I was teaching at Trinity. I had a huge class in the Kenneth Concert Hall Hall, uh, on the Synoptic Gospels, and I had read um, N.T. Wright's new book, The New Testament and the People of God, which is sort of a narrative framework for the New Testament. Now, I don't agree with everything he says now, uh, but he was giving a narrative that made sense of especially, well, the end of exile was his eschatological category. And I remember reading that just being overwhelmed by the freshness of the ideas. And it wasn't just Tom's end of exile, but just putting it all together in a narrative framework. And I will never forget the day that I lectured on this book in this class. It was like electricity jolted through the room. It was a book made for its time, expressing a Christian theology, but in a completely different framework. Jesus is the center. The story is ongoing. There's eschatology. There's God. There's salvation. There's all this stuff going on, but it had all been rearranged into a narrative rather than God, Man, Christ, Sin, Salvation. You know the the topics of salvation. And at that, at, from that point on, I was a narrative theologian. That's the way I wanted. To present theology.
0: You've been listening to another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast, where we take on issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to hit subscribe so that you will be notified next Tuesday when we release part two of our conversation with Scott. There's still time for you to register for Tove for Women, an event hosted by the Center for Women in Leadership on October 22nd. You will be able to hear more from Scott and his daughter, Laura Beringer, on their book, A Church Called Tove. Check out the podcast description for a link to Scott's Substack, And you can find Kingdom Roots podcast on your streaming service of choice.